Today is Remembrance Sunday. Today is the day when we rightly remember all the brave men and women who gave up their lives so that we might know freedom. We also make sure that we remember this day all those whose lives have been devastated by war, the injured, the bereaved, the refugees, those who have lost homes and possessions and businesses. We remember the horror and the waste of war and how we must all do whatever we can to see that peace overcomes violence. But there are another group of people that I would like us to briefly remember this morning. These are people who are often overlooked, if not openly mocked. Yet their lives too were blighted by war. I would like us to remember those who stood up as conscientious objectors. One such young man was John Burt Brocklesby, a 25-year-old teacher from Connorsborough in South Yorkshire. He is second from the right in the back row of this photograph. Burt came from a close-knit family of four boys whose father, the local grocer, was a leading light in the Methodist chapel. Bert himself was the organist and choir master, and before the war started, he became a lay preacher. In January 1915, Bert taught a sermon that would define his life forever. At his home church, he preached on Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. As a result, Bert Brocklesby refused to join up. At his tribunal in Doncaster in 1916, he was asked, Supposing you were in a corner with your back to the wall and six men were before you with open sword and fixed bayonet, would you not do something if you had a revolver in your hand? He replied, The sixth commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. I take it that it is better to be killed than kill anyone else. Brocklesby was ordered into the non-combatant corps, a group that was exempt from fighting duties but still under the direction of the army. While many conscientious objectors found this a reasonable outcome, he thought that this was the army just under another name and refused to join. His mother was sent a white feather, a symbol of cowardice. His father was urged to disown him, but they stood by Bert despite disagreeing with his views. In 1916, Brocklesby was arrested for refusing to obey orders and sent to Richmond Castle. And here he was held with 15 others, later to become known as the Richmond 16. The group which refused to do military drills or wear uniform were put on a bread and water diet in detention cells. Later that year, they were taken to Boulogne and stationed with soldiers who initially gave them short shrift. But the Richmond 16 maintained regular prayer, and after a few days, the mockery turned to respect as the soldiers began to appreciate the sincerity of these men. In June, they were all sentenced to death. But they had their sentences commuted to 10 years in prison. Brocklesby spent time in Winchester and Maidstone prisons before being released in 1919. The stigma of having been a conscientious objector remained, however, 
It was impossible for him to live and work in Connorsborough again. In the end, he had to leave Britain entirely and went to Russia and then Vienna to work on war relief. Sadly, Bert Brocklesby and the Richmond 16 were not on their own. Many conscientious objectors in the First World War did not have their death sentences commuted. Many more since have had their lives made a misery by their own communities. And still today in Russia, many conscientious objectors are being thrown into prison. You get 15 years for standing up against Putin's appalling war. Today we make the effort to remember these people as well. They too have had their lives ruined by war. Yet at the same time, they've shown us an example of the courage required to stand up for your convictions. Two and a half thousand years ago, Daniel was a conscientious objector. Even when the most awful pressure was applied to him, he would not move from what he believed to be right. Our passage today began with outright jealousy. In recent weeks, we have seen the cloak and dagger backstabbing nature of politics. Almost every day, our news has been filled with one dodgy deal or another as people try to cling on to power. The halls of government are a murky world where everyone is out for themselves. But this is nothing new. In Daniel's day, it was exactly the same. The chief ministers of the Persian king are angry that they've had a Jew placed over them. So they do everything they can to find fault or flaw with his character so they might discredit him, but they find nothing that might be exploited. So in a fit of temper, they set out to concoct a charge that will remove their political rival for good. They urge King Darius to make a new law that states for 30 days no one in the kingdom may pray to any god except him. If they do, they will be thrown to the lions. Now, of course, this rather flatters Darius's ego. So despite him really quite liking Daniel, he falls into the plotter's trap. The new law is put into writing and it cannot be repealed. And Daniel is now in the same position as Bert Brocklesby. He either follows what he believes to be right or he is very likely to lose his life. What a truly awful moment of decision this is. Now, of course, we all know what happens next. Many of us have known this story since childhood. But as we look at it again today, there are two things I want us to notice. In this time of great trouble, I want us to notice what Daniel does. And I want us to notice what God does in response. For if we really grasp these two things, they will greatly help us when we too find ourselves under pressure purely for holding on to our faith. So as this great moment of crisis arrives in Daniel's life, what is it that he does? Well, instinctively, he turns and prays to God. Let me read verse 10 again. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published... He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem 
And three three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. When Bert Brocklesby and the Richmond 16 were taken out to Boulogne and stationed with other soldiers in an attempt to humiliate them into armed service, it was prayer that kept them going. Well, so too it was with Daniel. There are three things that we learn about prayer from this story. First of all, prayer is an act of defiance. A decree was set banning people from praying to any god other than King Darius. But what does Daniel do? The verse was clear, wasn't it? When Daniel learnt that the decree had been published, he went home, got down on his knees and prayed. Daniel did the exact opposite thing to what he was pressurised to do. He chose to disobey this new law. He chose to stand against evil. Indeed, through prayer... He chose to rail against the edict that he believed so dishonoured the Lord God. For Daniel, prayer was an act of defiance. As an exile living in a foreign land ruled by foreign kings and their idols, it was difficult for Daniel to constantly speak out about the Lord. Of course he did. We've seen that regularly through the first five chapters of the book. But there were plenty of other moments where he just got his head down and served those around him as best he could. But when Daniel retreated to the private place of prayer, either at home or in the quiet moment of his working day, Daniel turned wholeheartedly to the Lord. He called on God for help. He called for his will to be done. And I believe that prayer is still an act of defiance. As we live on in a society that increasingly rejects Christ, we are praying for him to come back. We are praying for his reign still to be felt and his spirit to move. We are praying that behind the scenes God will go on orchestrating things so that his purposes come to be. As we pray, we're asking for boldness and strength. We are asking God to help us to keep going and stand up against all that is trying to hold us back. On a personal level, I use prayer as a weapon of defiance against my own anxiety. I told you before how anxiety can have a crippling effect on my life at times. And prayer is the best means I have to get through those moments. To help me find the strength to keep going and do the things that I know that God is calling me to do. I encourage us all to try the same. When we're up against it, defy adversity with prayer. The second thing I think we learn in this story is that prayer is an act of submission. Submission to God. As the king's decree is set in Daniel 6, the real matter at stake here is not just a little religious inconvenience. 30 days without prayer. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? Daniel could just have endured this as a minor frustration. But no, that wasn't the heart of this edict at all. The real issue is idolatry. Will Daniel pray to King Darius? 
Will he worship something other than the Lord God? This is a story about idolatry. And as we found in this book before, Daniel knew that like idolatry was the line that he could not cross. It was prohibited by the Ten Commandments. But notice this. In a way, the most tempting idol in this story is not the supposed divinity of King Darius, but Daniel's own security. As the decree is issued, Daniel is forced to answer a question. What mattered most to him? The right worship of God or his own personal safety? And now that we understand that, we can see how prayer truly becomes an act of submission to God. Because through prayer, Daniel effectively says, I will not make an idol of my own life. My own safety. Indeed, I will defy that idol as well. I will submit to God's will. It's a very similar prayer to that which Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when his life was also on the line. He too understandably feared death, but through prayer managed to find the words, Father, let not my will be done, but yours. Prayer is the way that we submit our own wayward thoughts and desires to the Lord. And Daniel shows us the best way in which we can do this. Through thankfulness. What was it verse 10 said? Three times a day Daniel got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Giving thanks to God. In a moment of such severity, it sounds almost perverse, doesn't it? But Daniel knew a great truth about gratitude. When we choose to remain thankful, even in a crisis, that act in itself keeps us looking up to God. It raises our eyes from the difficulty onto the solution. In thankful prayer, Daniel entrusts himself to all that he has known God do for him in the past. He celebrates his experience of God's presence with him and his power, his protection, his provision. God has always held Daniel in the past. And through continuing to thank him for that, Daniel is strengthened in the belief that he will go on holding him in the future. I don't know what it is that we're putting off at the moment. I don't know what act God has prompted us towards, but it just seems a little bit too scary to carry out. Maybe God wants us to reconcile with somebody who's hurt us. Maybe God wants us to invite someone to church. Maybe God wants us to challenge a bully at work or to get baptised. These are tough things. We know they're the right thing to do, but we fear to we hold back from them. Well, it's through prayer, and particularly prayer of thanksgiving, that we will come to the place where we submit ourselves again to God's will and choose to step out in faith. So prayer is an act of defiance against evil, and it's an act of submission to God's will. Finally, prayer is an act of routine. 
How was it that verse 10 finished? When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room and he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. That's really important. Never once do we read of any inner turmoil in Daniel in this story. Never once do we read of intense anguish that would make him waver on whether he should worship Darius or not. Daniel seemingly doesn't flinch at all. How on earth was that possible? It was possible because as soon as Daniel got home, he just slotted back in to his usual practice. He continued the habit that he developed across a lifetime. Prayer was second nature to him. It was what he did. He wouldn't even consider life without it. And all of us as believers need routines in our life that keep us going back to God, particularly when life is tough. We need to hone these natural reflex reactions that bring us before the throne of grace. And if we make regular prayer a priority when life is good, we will find that it holds us when life is tough. Be it first thing in the morning or last thing at night, be it before meals or when driving the car to work, we need to cultivate a rhythm of prayer. There will always be moments in our lives where we need help from someone much bigger than us. And it's through prayer that we access the resources for heaven, for life on earth. If we can make prayer a routine, it will keep us going in times of trouble. So this is what Daniel does. This is what enables him to keep standing for his faith. Like with Bert Brocklesby, conscientious objectors are sustained through prayer. Now it's time for us to see what God does in response. In the time of crisis, Daniel prayed and God vindicated. First of all, rather obviously in this story, God vindicates his people. He vindicates Daniel. Yet again in this book, as God's people find themselves in trouble, we discover that God hasn't deserted them. Rather, he's right there alongside them. And as God is personally present, he has the power to step in and to save. In this story, Daniel defied the decree. By doing so, he remained publicly faithful to his God. In response, God remains publicly faithful to him. And before the eyes of the king and all the onlookers in his court, God saves Daniel's life. He shuts the mouths of the lions and brings him out of the den alive, proving his innocence. Daniel is vindicated for the stand he has taken in much the same way that Bert Brocklesby was when the soldiers in Boulogne saw the integrity of his faith. But let's be real with one another for a moment. Much as we all love this story, we know that not every believer gets out of every crisis unscathed. There are plenty of Christian martyrs in the Bible and in the history of the church. People like Martin Luther King, 
who paid a heavy price for their faithfulness to God's word. We're forced to recognise then that for all believers, ultimate vindication comes through death, rather than us avoiding it. It is as we take our place in glory that we will realise that our trust in the Lord has been truly worth it. So it's important that we see that there's another form of vindication in this story. Alongside God vindicating his people, he also vindicates his name. As people of faith, we need to see that the key outcome in this story is not actually the miraculous survival of Daniel. The most important outcome of this story is that King Darius acknowledges God as God. We need to mature from the mere Sunday school reading of this story and really take in verses 26 and 27. Because as Daniel emerges from the den, Darius issues another decree. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. We worship a holy God who is concerned that his name gets what it truly deserves. And I would like us all to leave here this morning with the sure and certain hope that one day all of the world's politicians, all of the tyrants out there will echo these words of King Darius. Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns to this earth, before his final judgment, every knee will bow at his throne. And that means every knee. The knees of all the faithful and the knees of all those who've made our lives difficult. In this story, God vindicates his name in Babylon. One day he's going to vindicate his name across the whole world. The Lord of all will get the glory that he deserves as creator and ruler over all things. And of this we can be fully assured. And of this can become the greatest motivation for our prayer.